Dad, then what we're going to do is we're going to go through this thing, and they'll be stopping and starting. Hello? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Okay, hi. Hi. Um, they'll be stopping and starting. And uh, if basically, if you feel like saying anything you want over the course of this, it, it'll be better if you just jump in and say it, okay? Okay. For no, Father's Day this year, it seemed fun to rerun this episode from the earliest days of our radio show. This is an episode that I co-hosted with my dad. And this was made so long ago that my father in this recording, he's the same age that I am right now, in 2023, as I'm saying these words to you. Okay, so Dad, so you have the script. I have the script. And have you been practicing? Like crazy. Can I hear just a little sample of you reading something? Sure. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, the Father's Day edition. Dad, you are such a pro. (laughs) I haven't done this in 40 years. It brings back all kinds of memories. Now, you better explain to our radio listeners in what context you actually sat in front of a radio microphone, Dad. Well, um, it was around 1955 or 1956. Uh, when I graduated from Maryland, and instead of getting an honest job, I went to work in radio. So here is a, here's a tape of what you sounded like back in 1956 oh, on the please, radio. Please don't play that tape. This is three years before I was born, <laughs> um, and uh, you're, just, you're just a kid in this recording. You are 23 years old. Do personal problems and worries have you down? Are you disturbed by business problems, marriage problems, or emotional problems? See Mrs. K, reader and advisor. Mrs. K, formerly of Europe, gives you a reading and answers all your questions for just one dollar, and you'll feel much better. How could somebody, Dad, how could somebody who's charging a dollar for a reading even afford to buy a radio ad? Well, look, she's been to Europe, and she got her (laughs) education there, so they must have taught her something over there. Uh, (laughs) So, um, so now at some point you gave up your career, your burgeoning career in radio, really before it took off the ground, and that was because... Uh... It was nothing important. It was something called making a living. Right, and so now you're a certified public accountant living in Baltimore. Right, right. Well, let me say this. Um, let me give a, a little uh, explanation that we try to give each show for new listeners. Each week in our program, we document stories of life in these United States using all the tools of radio storytelling, documentaries, monologues, found tapes, anything we can think of. And today for Father's Day, my co-host will be my own father, Barry Glass, certified public accountant. And it's a real kick to do this. I know. This is our little Father's Day adventure together. You could have bought me a tie. Dad, uh, why don't you read the billboard? Our program today will have four acts. Act one, Sandra Singh Lo finds out that the world sees her father very differently from the way she sees him. Act two... And if that diamond ring don't shine, Ian Brown talks about everyday moments that test any father. Act three, the moment dad left. Act four, reconciling with dad. A story from playwright Bo O'Reilly. So dad, take us, take us into act one, will you please? Act one, how the world sees your father. So, Dad, our first story uh, today is from Los Angeles. It's from Sandra Tsinglo, as you said at the beginning of the show in the Billboard. When she was growing up, her father was, was not, he was not a fun dad. Uh, he himself had been orphaned in Shanghai when he was 12. He was raised in poverty, and because of that, he was just 
this 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 penny pincher doesn't even capture it as miserly. They didn't celebrate mm-hmm. Christmas. He never took his children to Disneyland, even though it was less than an hour away from their home. Uh, there were no real vacations. Sandra tells this story. Uh, once she bought a book of Charlie Brown comics for a dollar at a book fair, and her father threw it across the room, furious at how she had wasted money. He, he was really strict. Uh, but as Sandra found out recently, not everyone in the world sees her father the way she does. There's a kind of news that you're never prepared for. And here last week was mine. A friend told me that, incredibly, a local grunge band had composed a rock anthem about my dad and was performing it to great response in Malibu area clubs. The group in question was called Boy Hits Car, and the song, a wailing rock cri de coeur powered by Pearl Jam-like riffs, was in fact called Mr. Low. The actual cover of the Boy Hits Car demo tape was a grainily Xeroxed photo of a tiny wizened 76-year-old Chinese man grinning on a Malibu beach in tattered swim trunks, which was, indeed, my father. I have to admit, however, that the Mr. Low in the song was not one I was familiar with. As seen through the eyes of lifeguard-slash-singer Craig Rondell, Mr. Low is a mystical, dreamy figure who swims naked among the dolphins. In the duality that characterizes certain types of rock poetry, I'm reminded of The Doors, the natural dance Mr. Low does on the beach brings the listener comfort while at the same time poses a profound spiritual challenge. Mr. Low's not afraid to be naked, but some men fall from grace. They're not secure with themselves. He doesn't measure people by things we consider important. My first instinct was that this had to be a sick Freudian joke one of my siblings was playing on me. As in, what is the most wildly unlikely, most fraught with amazing ironies, most wacky 60s Peter Sellers film thing you can imagine could happen to our family? But no. My father was these Malibu surfers' Eggman. He was their walrus. I decided to meet them. Craig Rondell, bass player Scott Menville, and guitarist Louis Lennard were all too happy to come into a studio and explain how their song came to be. It was one day at the beach, and there was about five of us just sitting in the sand, just talking. Mr. Lowe came casually walking up, and, and he was standing there for just maybe three seconds without saying anything, and we were kind of like, okay. And then he said, you're all victims of modern technology. You know, I, I started thinking, I was like, wow, that's, you know, deep. And then they just started to talk to us. He would sing, you know, throughout the conversation. He would start singing. And so that's where the song, the premise kind of came from. Do you remember when you first saw my father? Go ahead, Scott. Uh, I remember. These guys probably have earlier memories. But it was in 1978, after the big fire came. Uh, our house burned down, and we moved to Malibu West. And I remember seeing Mr. Lowe stretching naked and then taking a shower outside naked. and At the beach. At the beach. And uh, I thought it was kind of, like, funny, but, like, not in a bad way. I thought it was interesting. That was my first memory. Okay. 
I too had similar memories. Um, ever since, I mean, I've been at that beach at Malibu West since I was in diapers and five, six, seven, eight years old. I was down there and I'd notice them doing somersaults in the sand or doing headstands against the wall. Um, so what naked did you, as well. So what did you think? Talking to these guys, it suddenly occurred to me who my dad really is. You know how every neighborhood has its eccentric the cat lady, the parrot man, the guy with the umbrella hat and recycling cart who yells. Well, in my Southern Californian hometown, Malibu West, my dad is that person. It's an unsettling thing to realize about one of your own parents. And behind Mr. Lowe's back, he was known as the naked handstand man. (laughs) For years, I didn't even know his name. I just thought he was the naked handstand man. You're going to have to do the song. The song? What do you mean the song? Scott has another. (laughs) I'm going to put him on the spot. Oh, no. Um, Wait, there's a naked handstand? It's just a... Yes, of course, there's a naked handstand man song. Unbelievably, the Mr. Lowe song they'd recorded was only the latest in a decade-long aesthetic exploration of my father on the part of boy hits car bassist Scott Menville. Okay, it was like, I was walking down the beach one day, I happened to turn and look his way, there stood a man that we all know, and his name is Mr. Lowe, he stood right there with his head in the sand, He's the naked handstand man. Mr. Lowe, Mr. Lowe. Like something like that. We were like 12. I invited my father to join me and the band in the studio. He doesn't really see all the fuss about his nakedness. For example, in Stanford, at Stanford University, which I went there too, in the main swimming pool, everybody is naked. Because that's the most uh, hygienic, most uh, clean thing to do, you see. But if some young people want to see his nakedness as a symbol of something more important, well, my father's happy to be of service. The way I discovered this tape was this. One day, maybe a couple months ago, I hitchhiked. And a couple young men picked me up. They said, Mr. Low, we hear that tape about you in a song. Oh, I see those rascals, they did tell me, they even didn't tell me. And it's very nice. I'm very, I feel very happy, very honored, you know. Probably if they don't write any song about me, probably nobody will ever write about me. <laughs> so this is my life chance. Of course, that's not true because I've made my career writing about you. Yeah, but you know. not sound, you see. Okay. You see, you are on the writing, so I appreciate that too. But yeah, I like something different. That's, that's very precious for me, see. Of course, with all due respect to the members of Boy Hits Car, in my opinion, my father is the least likely candidate to become a symbol of individual freedom, of spiritual introspection, of the healing powers of nature. After all, this is a man who believed all three of his children should get PhDs in engineering or else they would starve in the street. Then again... All these things may be a matter of personal interpretation. So you see my father's nakedness as kind of a rebellion of some sort or No, not actually. He's I natural. just yeah, he's, just he's being natural. I feel that he has the ability to go beyond the general stereotype that America holds in that regard and is free. Contact with nature now. That's very important. Not in the society, you're so busy, 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 busy. Not much time, you know, talk to yourself or talk to the nature. Nature, 
But did you encourage, I'm just trying to remember as kids if you encouraged us to do that. Oh, yes. Okay, when? Well, you, we, we do many things. We always go along the Zuma Beach to the garbage can to collect those uh, aluminum cans. And we compete with the Vander Maiden's family, you know. Yeah. We have to go one step ahead. Not to put too fine a point on it, but a competition to collect cans for spare change is not the sort of communing with nature, say, Walt Whitman and Ralph Waldo Emerson extolled. Which brings me to another point. I have to say, there is something sort of poignant about sitting in a room full of young people who are hanging on to my father's every word. He's like an odd little guru, they his apostles. God knows he never got that from my sister, brother, or me. At one point, for reasons too complicated to explain here, my father sang the boys in the band a Chinese folk song that he had translated into French. Were you were you crying? I must say that tears were coming. Why? 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 <laughs> what? I was just beautiful. I was just an unhindered, true expression of something that I just felt that was totally genuine. I, I just gave me the chills. Should I sing another one? <laughs> why not sing another one? If this makes my father happy. Well, then I guess I'll try to be happy for him. Dad, do you have the script for the back end? Yeah, I have it. Okay, uh, why don't you give the back end? Sandra Singh Lowe is a writer, performer, composer, and columnist for Buzz Magazine. Hey, this is Ira in 2023. Today's show is a rerun. I am jumping in to say that Sandra actually has a new comedy called Mad Women of the West that's running at the Odyssey Theater in Los Angeles right now. Her dad, Mr. Lowe, died a few years ago at the age of 96, and the band did a live performance of this song at his wake. Hey, Dad, you know, one of the things that you often complain to me about, about stories that you hear on public radio is that, is that they're too long. H- how are we doing so far? How long was that story in the, total? The total story is about 11 minutes. That's a pretty long piece. Too long, do you think? Yeah, I think it's too long. Did your interest flag? Uh, no, my interest didn't uh, slow down. However, if I were listening to the show at home... Uh, with other distractions around, it might uh, lag off a little bit, okay. I think. Dad, it's time to open up Act 2. Act 2, Father's Music. Now, Dad, for this uh, act, I asked you to bring in an example of the kinds of music that you, my father, used to play around the house when I was a kid. Because you had music going, you know, whenever you were home on weekends. And... Absolutely. Okay, what, so, what'd you, so what'd you bring in? Well, I brought uh, three Frank Sinatra CDs. Right on. Is, can, can, we, can you just choose a song and let's, let's pop that on? Sure. What have you got? Uh, probably my favorite Frank Sinatra song, Lady is a Tramp. Now, why, is this, why is this your favorite? I don't know, I just like the rhythm, uh, like Frank Sinatra's uh, phrasing. 
she gets too hungry for dinner at eight. She likes the theater and never comes late. Ari, you remember the uh, 60th birthday party? She never Your 60th birthday party, of course. Right, where we had the uh, Frank Sinatra impersonator. Sure. Well, this is, uh, he sang this there. Did a pretty good job, too. Doesn't like crap games with barons or earls. Won't go to Harlem in ermine and pearls. What do you think? Pretty good song? It's a great song. And this next story that we're going to do is about a fatherly duty that is linked to a song, but not a good song. So it's not Lady is a Tramp or anything like that? No, definitely not. This song is actually Happy Birthday. Um, I think you're going to like this next story, Dad. It's definitely from the dad's point of view. It's about being a father. Ian Brown recorded this for us at a show that we did in front of a live audience. No one arrives fashionably late for a seven-year-old's birthday party. (laughs) That offends rule one of parental life. Never waste free babysitting. But all seven guests at my daughter Haley's seventh birthday party were dropped off by their parents mysteriously seven minutes early. (laughs) That sort of behavior is just plain rude. It was like being swarmed by a gang from Planet Tiny. They dropped their coats in the hall and immediately scattered to the farthest corners of the house like some new, instantly contagious form of biological weapon. (laughs) I staggered upstairs with a small mountain of coats in my arms, which is not a chore I saw myself performing back when I was young and longing to be grown up. Even when I was 11, I wanted to be married because married people I knew had sex every night of their lives. (laughs) But that's another story. I was lugging coats. Back downstairs, Trish, the mother of Katie, Haley's best friend, two best friends ago, Trish shot me a knowing look. Magician, right? How can you tell, I said. Fiber optic wands by the forks. And that was the first hint that my wife and I might have gone slightly over the top birthday-wise, that we might have stepped over the strict moral boundary that separates caring, thoughtful parents who, who believe in personal attention and quality time from cheeseballs like us <laughs> who try to buy their way into their children's hearts. It's easy to commit that social gaffe these days. My wife and I both work. The harder we work, the guiltier we feel, the more we want Haley's birthday parties to be, well, visible from outer space would be gratifying. (laughs) We'd been planning Haley's seventh birthday, or to be slightly more accurate, my wife Johanna had been planning it and I'd been doing nothing. for weeks. (laughs) What there was was a cake, iced by professionals, in the shape of a magician's top hat, 
which cost 30 bucks. Eight loot bags filled with thoughtful, age-appropriate, peanut-free party favors <laughs> at $15 a bag. And of course, the magician himself at $150 for two hours. He called himself the Amazing Robert. I don't think he meant that ironically. <laughs> now, I like to do something special on Haley's birthday. Still, don't you think I said to my wife as she frantically tried to find a magician who wasn't booked three months in advance, don't you think we might be over-amping? <laughs> but honey, if we don't go slightly crazy, Johanna said, quite logically, some other parent will. Then what's Haley gonna think? And anyway, do you have a better idea? And I did not have a better idea. My sole contribution to the magician party had been to suggest that we include a whoopee cushion <laughs> in every loot bag. Or, or at least it was my idea to blow them up. And put them in the loot bags pre-inflated. In the old days, when Haley was small, we kept her birthday simple. I learned that lesson when I lived in Los Angeles, near Beverly Hills. In Beverly Hills, parents liked their children's birthday parties to have a theme, and a fairly significant theme at that. Manifest destiny, say, or... <laughs> or a NASA moonshot. In LA, I never went to a birthday party that featured anything less than pony rides. And one mother actually gave out Gucci t-shirts in the loot bags. And it was hard to compete with that. In an act of defiance, a friend of ours, a struggling writer, staged her daughter's birthday in a park, of all places. The kids had a good enough time. They ran around and swung on swings and played tag and generally reveled in a whole two hours when they weren't under the watchful eye of a nanny or armed response security. The grab bags contained what grab bags are supposed to contain, candy, rather than Rolex watches. <laughs> Afterwards, the Beverly Hills parents flocked, I mean, literally flocked round our friend. Fabulous idea, they said, nature, who would have thought? Can I steal a theme? <laughs> but our friend Catherine is the queen of the less is more easy on mummy birthday party. She says children want strong experiences, not new ones. Which is why last weekend, for her daughter Mary's seventh birthday, Catherine invited seven, six girls over to string gummy bears onto extra-long bamboo satay skewers. That was the theme of the party. <laughs> Skewering candies on a stick. And there was some risk of eye injury, and the entire gimmick seemed to have Freudian undertones. The little girls kept saying, I'm going to stick this skewer up Gummy's tiny butt. <laughs> and giggling hysterically. But all in all, it was a winner. <laughs> Only one girl barfed. The entire party cost 15 bucks. Canadian.
It is true that Catherine had a piñata. Piñatas are excellent because they entail hitting an object violently with a stick. <laughs> but those were the old pre-Bacchanalian birthdays. By the time Haley turned five, the year of our most corrupt and therefore most successful birthday, we'd gone as low as a parent can go. We'd hired human Barbie. <laughs> For $300, human Barbie dressed up in full-size versions of Barbie doll outfits and came to your house. Human Barbie arrived in a Dodge Grand Caravan with human Midge, her assistant. Two giant mobile racks of party dresses for the girls, a tea set in a case, and two chests of makeup. She dressed the kids, discussed the possibility of multiple careers, and fed them cake. All our friends were completely horrified. I, I might as well have said, oh, this year, Haley's having a crack party. We're having a cake made of crack, too. <laughs> my Canadian friends put this crassness down to the fact that Johanna, my wife, is an American. <laughs> but successful? Wow. It, it was as if the Dalai Lama had made a stop at our house. <laughs> the girls were hypnotized with awe. They spent most of the afternoon standing in a circle brushing human Barbie's hair. <laughs> I had the feeling that secretly, quite a few mums wouldn't have minded giving it a try themselves. As it turned out, I needn't have worried about the amazing Robert, the magician, either. He was a, a handsome guy with sideburns and a, and a wry, if somewhat resigned, manner. He knew what he was doing, though. He, he started cracking jokes uh, uh, with the kids right away. You must be Haley, he said to one of the boys as he walked through the door. No, Peter said, I'm a boy, and clapped his hands. Hey, the magician said, no clapping. So all the kids clapped. I said, no clapping. By the time he started pulling eggs out of their noses, you know, they were goners. <laughs> I chose that moment to run upstairs. I find I need a moment alone at regular intervals at these kitty birthday bashes also at adult parties. In fact, I could use a, a moment alone right about now. <laughs> but when I open the door to my bedroom, what do I find? Lying, lying on my bed, surrounded by entire mountain ranges of miniature winter coats. Two of my adult guests holding hands. Their spouses were downstairs. I must say, they played it cool. A headache, the woman said, you know, rubbing her temples, not that I asked. Yeah, I said, these kids' parties can be brutal. I tell you, I left fast. I didn't want to ask. I certainly didn't want to know. And downstairs, the amazing Robert was making cards disappear and reappear. But Trish, Katie's mum, she kept staring at the magician. I thought she disapproved of his tricks, but then she gave a little shriek. I know, she said, I knew, I knew that magician. He has just come through a terrible divorce from a birthday clown. <laughs> Which pretty much says it all, doesn't it? It's terrible getting older. 
the disappointments and the letdowns. But no child believes that. They want to get older. I mean, if you're seven, you can't wait to be nine. I mean, nine, that is going to be the greatest. Because they think life just gets better and better and better the older you get. And we grown-ups, we know better. Or we think we do. Or at least we need to think we do. But I didn't have much time for such maudlin thoughts, and frankly convoluted ones, because a new sound was, was wafting in from the living room, a sound it is, frankly, impossible to be maudlin about. They'd found the loot bags. <laughs> Crass, sure. Cheesy, absolutely. Grown up, not at all. That's what I liked about it. Thank you. Ian Brown, he's a roving writer for the Globe and Mail in Toronto. Also the author of The Boy in the Moon, A Father's Journey to Understand His Extraordinary Son, and 60, My Year of Aging Semi-Gracefully. Hey, Dad, it's time for us to give stations a chance to do their local ID breaks and local promos. So I think you have a piece of copy there in front of you. I do. Coming up, one father leaves, another one returns in a minute when our program continues. It's This American Life, I'm Ira Glass, our special Father's Day edition. And co-hosting with me for this day is my own father, Barry Glass, now a certified public accountant in Baltimore, but once upon a time, back in his early 20s, a DJ. Ira, you also said you wanted a song uh, dealing with fathers. That's right. Did you bring in a song dealing with fathers? I did. What, what have we got? It's by somebody that you may have never heard of uh, because you're too young. Maybe you have. Eddie Fisher. Wasn't he? You know, the only way that I know who Eddie Fisher is, wasn't he one of um, uh, Elizabeth Taylor's husbands? That's right. That's right. He was the one before um, the uh, guy who she did Cleopatra with. Right. Is that right? That's Right. How very he, sad uh, for Eddie Fisher. This is all <laughs> I would know. Here I am, a person in my mid-30s, an educated person. That is all I would know about uh-huh. him. Richard Burton was married to Elizabeth Taylor after Eddie Fisher. The name of the song is Oh My Papa. It's like Jewish mariachi music. Is that uh, on point for Father's Day? You couldn't get more on point. Actually, one of our producers... You go around singing that about your father? I will now, Dad, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) At least for the day. At least for Father's Day. Do you want me to do it now? No, that's okay. No, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. No, no, I'm going to do it. I've heard you sing. You can't stop me. (laughs) When he would take me on his knee and... And with a smile, he changed my tears to laughter. Oh, my papa. Dad, this is going out to you. To me, he was so wonderful. Oh, dear. Ira, my heart is breaking. I miss him so much. 
out Act Three, the moment Dad left. In this act, um, we have a story from Jay Allison. Jay Allison is um, this radio producer that all the people who kind of work behind the scenes in public radio, we all we all know him, and he does mm. these really unusual little stories. Uh-huh. He lives in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, Cape Cod, and one of his neighbors is a guy named Dan Robb, and Dan Robb is a writer and a teacher and a carpenter. And Jay and Dan had an idea for a little radio experiment. Dan's father left his family when Dan was a little kid, just, I think, three or four years old. And, and Dan remembered that night vividly, or he thought he did, but he had never discussed this with his parents. So, Dad, um, Jay encouraged Dan to talk to his parents about this on tape. And, um, and I'm going to play you the story they put together, okay? Yeah, I'd like to hear it. I remember clearly the morning they told me they were separating. I was three, and they leaned over my bed, which was narrow, and told me this. Something like, don't think this changes anything, but Dad's moving out. And what I remember is telling them that it was not okay. Then, later that day, I remember watching my father's back as he walked down the stairs outside the house. They were cement and had a black wrought iron banister running up both sides, and he was walking down the steps away from me. He had a brown tweed jacket on and brown leather shoes, and he was carrying two brown suitcases. He put them in his Jeep back when they still said Willis on the side, and he drove away. The steps were um, cement steps, pretty steep, at about three flights, three little flights, three steps, and then a landing and three steps down. And there was something crooked about them. One of the steps sort of went off at an angle, and there was a an iron railing along the way, not very pretty. Now, if I looked out the window and watched Dad packing his car and then driving away at that time, what kind of car would it have been? Well, he had bought a a little sports car because his car was in the, the garage, in the shop, and he didn't want to wait till it was ready, which would have been two or three days later. And uh, but he bought a little car so that he could leave right away. And he told me he was leaving on a trip across the country because that's what he had to do in order to clear his mind and get his feet on the ground again. So he packed up and he got in this little sports car and took off. What kind of car was it? It was a little Triumph. Uh-huh. A little uh, two-door. It was a neat little car, which I sort of got special for the the trip and um as i i just wanted to i just drove out west i mean i i just wanted to get get away from pittsburgh and uh-huh. and uh just sort of clear my head out i thought and um but i remember telling uh allison that when i got back i thought i would i would uh, want to uh, move out i had a lot of different feelings i was angry that he'd done it i was angry that he hadn't ever taken dan and me uh, you and me on a trip. And he was walking down the steps away from me. And he was carrying two brown suitcases. He put them in his Jeep back when they still said Willis on the side. And he drove away. A little while before he left that day, he knelt down in front of me and tightened my belt for me. I have a picture of that. His hands are big, bigger than mine will ever be, farmer's hands or a ball player's hands, and he is cinching the belt gently tighter and saying something to me. I mean, I, I feel uh, 
I feel bad about all of the, the, the sort of gaps when, when I wasn't there. And um, all of that time, I mean, it's, once it's gone, it's gone. You can never get it back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, relationships in many ways are built of memories. And the more memories you have, the, the deeper the relationship. And if you miss a, several years of memories, you know, that's hard. Well, there's a snapshot of his doing your belt up for you when you were probably three or four. You were four when he left, weren't you? And I don't remember exactly what the season was. There was I mean, it had to have been fall, I think, uh, because um, I remember taking a lot of pictures of you in the subsequent weeks when we get together you know, and go to the parks and stuff. And it was all autumn and he is cinching the belt gently tighter and saying something to me. I can't make out the words in the picture, which is black and white, and shows me standing there three years old in front of the big window that let the monochrome Pittsburgh light into the living room. The light is stark, as if all of the coal burned to smelt the steel in that city had burned the color out of the air, and it reflects off his hair, which is smooth with vitalis, and shows his strong jaw and the depth of his dark eyes. There was no abuse in that household, no harsh words that I could hear, just nothing. No father anymore, and my mother sobbing over the dishes in the sink. What do you think you would have done after he had packed up his car and left? What would have been your reaction that I might have observed? Um, oh, you probably saw me sad and mournful, but then turning back to the house and and uh, trying to look cheerful. But I also felt I also felt abandoned, and I felt that it was the uh, the end of a marriage, the end of my hopes for a marriage, the end of a my hopes for a family for you and me. And he left us. But I also felt, as he drove out of sight, uh, well, thank goodness, what a sense of relief. I'm free of all that abuse and misunderstanding and bad feeling that had been going on for so long. I thought, well, at least I can be me now and, and not try to be something that somebody else was making me be. The, the split up was my doing. And uh, <clears throat> coming out of a sort of a combination of my own um, immaturity, restlessness, dissatisfaction, uh, inflated hopes and expectations. And I think, uh, I guess I, I just felt that I had never, I'd never had any, any kind of freedom. Of course, I mean, I never, I, I never really found freedom afterwards. You know, you, you sort of uh, think, well, you're going to change your life, and then lo and behold, your life turns out to be about the same. I was three, and they leaned over my bed, which was narrow, and told me this. Don't think this changes anything, but Dad's moving out. And what I remember is telling them that it was not okay. I didn't want him to tell you first, and he didn't want me to tell you first, so we did it together, and I remember I knew it was a a terrible blow for you.
I don't remember telling you with her. Uh-huh. You were in bed, I remember. I mean, at least I have this, this picture in my mind. And uh, in that little room, you know, that, uh, at uh, Maple Heights. And I, I came in and I, <clears throat> and I said, uh, started to say something like, Dan, I'm going to be uh, leaving and whatever I was, was going to say. And you uh, somehow knew what was coming. It was not okay. And you said, uh, I don't want to hear it. Hmm. And sort of, uh, you know, like put a pillow over your head, and uh, and kind of, you know, didn't want to, didn't want to listen. Hmm. And uh, and and it was a, it was a, a wrenching moment. Uh, it, it really was. And um, I mean, I, I've thought since since then that uh, actually, when I when I when I walked out of your bedroom that night. Yeah, um, that that was really a, a a major turning point in my life, and um, and I and I don't know to this day whether it was for for good or ill. When my father left my bedroom, it was a turning point for me too. It was the moment I moved outside the myth of the American family, left it, and became a part of something else, something with no affirming mythology to look forward to, and my restless memories of that day to look back on. I became a part of divorce, which is like the death of the family, and I turned down a path less well-marked, less well-lit, but I, unlike my father, no longer wonder if it was for good or for ill. It just is. Okay, well, I think that's about it. Uh, this will um, be on the radio right before Father's Day. Oh. So, um, so I'd like to wish wish you happy Father's Day. Oh, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and uh, and maybe we can make something good out of this. Yeah. So thank you so much. Okay. All right. I love you. Love you, man. Okay. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. When I die. Jay Allison and Dan Robb made that back in the 90s when we first broadcast today's show. Hey, Dad. Yes, sir. Do the next uh, act open, please. Act four, Reconciling with Dad. You know, this whole show is like a little reconciling with Dad. Though you and I, we're, we don't need to reconcile, but... No, we don't. We don't. Well, Dad, this next story is um, is about a father and son. The father was this, uh, was this pretty well-known man here in Chicago named James D. O'Reilly. He was an actor here and a director uh, from the 1960s through the 1980s. And... Um, among people who went to theater, just, you know, he's one of these people who everybody knew. He was artistic director of the Body Politic Theater and the Court Theater. And um, he wasn't the most reliable dad. And his, his son uh, is a guy named Bo O'Reilly, who's a playwright and a local musician and uh, stages a lot of theater here in town. And, uh, and Bo has this story about um, 
about his father, including a moment in their lives when they did reconcile, in a way. When I was a little kid, five or six, my father would do these big variety shows, these musical reviews for college theater groups. And I would often appear with him playing the bad kid in town or the clown screaming the lines of this old man from the top of a stepladder. And at the show's end, we would rush first to the bar where my father knew all the girls' names and then to the train station to catch the last train home. And I would get very tense then and and hot in my stomach, like I was going to burn up and pass out as we would often miss the last train home and have to spend the long hours till morning waiting in the train station, my father falling quickly asleep, his huge head thrown back in the train waiting room seat. It seemed to hang at an impossible odd angle from the rest of his body, like the dot at the bottom of a question mark that knows it has to be there, but hangs odd and unattached. And this scene, my father drunk and snoring, a big question mark of a presence, would be repeated numbers of times over the next 25 years. My father passed out at the family table on Christmas morning, my father nodding off behind the wheel, my father snoring through the still Latin mass, my father's head thrown back in the last row during my high school production of The Glass Menagerie. But when he was awake, he was not totally present either. He was this silent, brooding man, home once a week for a family dinner. And I would sit up all night in that train station, listening to the muted rumblings of the next morning's diesel engines and the fluttering of pigeons in the ceiling above, my father's snoring, made rusty and noisy by too much cigarettes and beer. When I was 29, something changed between me and my father. I was 29, very drunk most days, And I came home to Chicago to work for my father, I guess. I had rarely seen him in my alcoholic adulthood, his alcoholic adulthood having taken him away from the family circle years ago. And when my father, he got me this job as a house manager and sometimes understudy at his theater on Lincoln Avenue. And he was warm and kind about it, I guess. This kindness was unusual. It was hard for me to recognize it. I didn't know whether it was kindness really or not. Maybe he just recognized something in my swaying walk and my overly bright, loud way of speaking, a kindred alcoholic spirit. We would from then on do our drinking together late nights at the pub next door to the theater, a pub where we could sit for hours, get a burger and a beer, a pub where my father ran a tab, and I was always on the tab. Now the pub tables were family long, with my father always at the head and crowded with actors and confidants, all with one ear pointed at my father, hoping for a good joke from him, which usually came, or some word of praise, which came rarer, but when delivered, were always delivered with a flair and a passion. These tables would start full, full of people and huge pints of black Guinness and brown beer, but by one or two in the morning, they would be empty, except for my father and I. Me talking loud and 
feverish now, lovers and women and broken hearts and politics and plays and broken hearts and lost lovers and lost women and broken hearts. And me doing most of the talking, my father nodding and grimacing, looking appropriately sad. But his eyes looking away always, scanning the bodies of the young women who moved about in the pub's waning hours. Sometimes these women stopped by the table to speak to my father, him finding sly ways to kiss and touch and pinch them, locking their eyes with his as if his eyes were gift enough to allow him his inappropriate touching. The pub would close with us still in it, the tables having adopted the chairs and now holding them piggyback, and my father would sign his tab with a flourish and we would part company me often watching him walk slowly up Lincoln Avenue. A large man with a lordly old-fashioned head, always aware that he was like something out of Shakespeare or O'Neill. He might be swaying, but swaying with a charm and a dignity. The further my father got up the street, the more real he felt to me. There. There. That was the father I knew. Half a courtyard away, under the hot lights, doing Shakespeare's Lear or Brecht's Galileo. And I would stand on Lincoln Avenue, crying. The crying of a 29-year-old drunken baby whose father is moving away, always moving away. And that baby knows he's better off having dad go. I learned a lot watching my father's theater that year, wonderful productions and Playboy of the Western World and Ronald Harwood's The Dresser, Brian Friel's translations. My father's performances were always in the center of, of the place. And I was the house manager. I was skittish in a baggy suit and non-matching vintage ties, greeting the audience at the door, selling them coffee, but mostly watching the performances night after night. My understudy assignment was not something any of us ever expected to use, but one week, here it comes. An actor could not appear, and I was to play my father's tortured, crippled son. It was an Irish play about an Irish father and his Irish sons, and I was an Irish son, never mind that I had an Irish brogue like Ringo Starr's Liverpool, and I had never appeared on a professional stage. There would be one rehearsal. My father not even on stage, but seated in the audience, chain-smoking, hungover, barking orders, orders that move my body hot and frightened, clumsily around the stage, me mumbling the lines and standing in all the wrong places. And the night of the performance, I was pacing and shaking in the hall outside of the green room where my father and the rest of the cast were making up and preparing to perform. I could hear them talking, but they couldn't see me at all. They didn't know I was there. And one of the actors said, with a good actor's projection and precise actor's diction, get ready for amateur night. What did you say? My father said it quietly, but with force. Get ready for amateur night. Well, he'll be fine. You worry about yourself. Prick. 
Now this is the only time I ever heard my father defend me. And I now realize the significance of that, but at the time I was very angry. And it was the anger that burned the fear out of me like a fog on a new hot summer Sunday. And I was fine when I hit the stage. I was understudy good enough. And when I played to my father, his eyes a deep well into the heart of Brian Friel's translations. I actually enjoyed myself. There were moments of real emotion between us. And on the stage, my father was really there. Like I could reach out and touch him and he would really be there. And when the lights came down, I stumbled off stage tripping and falling in the dark. And my father was waiting his big, noble actor head shaggy with sweat, his arms open to receive me. We hugging. Missed the curtain call. Probable first for my father. He was not one to miss a curtain call. A few months later, my father fired me during his production of The Dresser by Ronald Harwood. My father playing Sir, a bullying, tyrannical, Shakespearean actor, Sir. My father was not one to shrink from typecasting. And one of my assignments was to meet him in the lobby, holding a towel which he would use to wipe the makeup and sweat from his face before returning to the stage for the curtain call. I wasn't there with the towel. I had wandered off to the pub for a pint before the show ended. The truth be told, there were probably many nights when I wasn't there. I was off crying into the phone, running off the long-distance phone bill for the theater, or selling dope out of the theater concession stand to my friends. I was 29 and drunk most of the time. And my father, he recognized me for what I was. I was becoming very much like him in my 29th year. And perhaps he was embarrassed and uncomfortable having to see himself and me every day. He was fired soon after from his theater on Lincoln Avenue. And we continued to meet in the pub night after night for many months. Bill O'Reilly is a Chicago playwright, and he's also the co-host of the Rhinoceros Theater Festival, which today shows a rerun. It is now in its 34th year. He'll be performing on July 1st in a tribute to Bob Dylan.
So, Dad, you're sitting there in a studio in Baltimore. I'm here in Chicago. Do you have our credits? I do have your credits. All right. Our program was produced today by Elise Spiegel and Ira Glass with Peter Clowney, Nancy Updike, and Dolores Wilbur. Our contributing editors are Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, and the fabulous Margie Rockland. Special thanks today to Bob Carlson at KCRW in Santa Monica for recording Sandra Sing Low, her father, and the band Boy Hits Car. And to Dave Johnson at WJHU, the fabulous Dave Johnson, for, uh, for getting my dad on tape and out here. Music help today from Chicago's John Connors. The story about Dan Robb's father leaving comes from Jay Allison's series, Life Stories, which is funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. That was so smooth. Additional help on today's rerun from Matt Tierney, Stone Nelson, and Ella Mustafa. Also worth mentioning, uh, Boy Hits Car, the band that we heard from in Act One, has a new album coming out later this year, 2023. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. I'm Ira Glass. And I'm Barry Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Till then, don't drive like my father. Don't drive like my son. Don't drive like my son.